What things do you and I take for granted as being true without question when they might not be true? One thing that I hold that is a lie that I often hold in my heart is that more is better. More money, more things, more notoriety, uh, more muscle, uh, more square feet, uh, more investments, more businesses, more cars, more houses, more cubic feet in my refrigerator. All of that would just be more is better and it's a lie I too often believe. Here's another lie. You know, it's just about time, and I really deserve to treat myself. I, you know, everybody else has it, and just, it's just my turn. There are some things that we all hold that can be absolute lies. Today's chapter, by the way, if you're visiting here today and you're like, now wait a minute, Pastor Tim knew there's going to be a lot of visitors today because there's a corn feed. Why would he choose this text for us today when visitors are coming? This isn't for you. This is how we preach here. We go paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through entire books. This is just what's next, okay? And so you get to listen in on a conversation we're having as a church family. Um, Today's chapter in Isaiah is a continued contrast in which worshiping God is being contrasted to worshiping idols. And today we're going to see that idols are inferior to God because they leave worshipers blind and deaf and, and with the, even blind to this irony that with, with the same block of wood, you take part of it and you burn it and you keep warm with it and you bake bread with it and another part of wood, you bow down to it and you say, you are my God. That's ironic, and that's entirely lost on the worshiper of the idol. Idols are what people look to for identity and meaning, to grease the skids in life, to make life in this life to go better. In the ancient time, uh, man was more superstitious, and they looked to statues and the spirit realm inhabiting these statues to give them meaning, to give them protection, and to help them through this life. It was an effort to manipulate their future, to bring good luck. In modern times, Satan's strategy for the United States is to chuck the spiritism and and forget worshiping the golden statue and just worship the gold, worship the bling. Uh, For the bling's sake, who needs a god? Who needs spiritism? Let's just worship the gold. Now, even though we are in modern times, some cultures still hold on to some different superstitions and different beliefs. Um, one that our families encountered, you might go into a home and you might find a little, a little altar with a little food items or something like this. And I don't think the people doing this are really hugely mindful of these gods or anything like that. I think they're kind of like, well, you know, it's good luck. Eh, you know, it could be good luck, so why not? Um, probably more intense is, uh, and this is a, a picture one of our church members took in South Africa of a graveyard in South Africa. And as you look at these graves, if you look real closely at what's on the dirt in these graves, you might see some plates. You might see a pot. Uh, See, here's a row of plates. Uh, Here's a little pot, uh, a cook pot. And uh, back here's another plate, and you'll see uh, see cups, and you'll see silverware. And, And what this is, is this is regard for ancestors who have deceased. And the idea is that they are now uh, taking on a higher spirit form than you are. They are closer to God. They are in God's presence. And, and so they have access to God that you don't. Uh, they can go to God on your behalf. And they can also go to God against you or they can work against you. And so if things aren't well, if your baby gets sick, you go to the graveyard and you honor your ancestor because maybe you haven't been honoring them enough and they're upset with you. 
So, so there's all these different kinds of superstition, and yet if you honor them, and if you bring them a plate of food, and you put the plate, and you let them know I'm mindful of you, even though you, well, then life just might go a little bit better for you. In fact, it might go a lot better for you. Now, today in our realm, we are not so spiritual in the United States. We are atheistic. We are naturalists. Atheism is the total denial of any gods, and mankind is the highest form of creation, and, and, and so, you know, we, we, we are, it's, it's humanism. And, and then the naturalism, that, that everything has a natural scientific explanation behind it, and, uh, and, and so our idols today, we don't, we don't make statuary, at least that I'm aware of here in Pine Island, Minnesota, we don't make statuary and bow down and worship the statues. Uh, our idols are things like sexual activity, our bodies, our homes, our cars, our toys, getting more, and the lie that more is better. In antiquities, idols, these statuaries, displace God. In, mod- in modern culture, we have many things that displace God in our lives. They act the same as idolatry in that they displace God. Now, did the Bible miss that? Did the Bible miss that there'd be a time when mankind would say, chuck the spiritism and let's just worship the gold? Did it foresee that? I want you to listen to a verse that I'm going to be reading later on in the sermon. It comes from Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, that's wanting more, covetousness, which is idolatry. So you see, the Bible even defined that things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness are forms of idolatry. No statue, no spiritual superstition, just pursuing sexual pleasures, just pursuing covetousness. This is idolatry, and Colossians 3, 6 continues, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So as we open up Isaiah 44 this morning, we can approach it one of two ways. We can approach it as a historical study on ancient man and say, my, how stupid and silly and out of, you know, touch these people were. Let's look at this and just see, can you believe people actually did this and believe this? Or... We can look at it a broader sense of idolatry and we can look for parallels between ancient man and the foolishness of his idolatry and modern man and the foolishness of our idolatry. And that is the take that I'm going to have on this. What are the things that we pursue rather than God? Things that cannot deliver us when cancer strikes, when neurological problems hit. When cardiovascular problems make it clear that your life is about to end, what are the things that we pursue instead of God that cannot deliver us from the true problems of life and eternity? Let's read today. Where I'm going to start reading uh, in Isaiah 44, and I'm going to start in verse number 9. By the way, as I start, I want you to notice in verse 12, it talks about the ironsmith. Then in verse number 13, it talks about the carpenter. That's in reverse order. Because before the ironsmith clads the wooden statue with gold, the carpenter has cut it out. So Isaiah is working backwards. In fact, if you look at the verbs, if you look at verse 13, it talks about the carpenter. He shapes it in verse 13. In verse 14, he cuts down cedars. Well, you cut down the cedar, then you shape it, right? And then later in verse number 14, he plants a cedar. So he's going in reverse order. You plant, then you cut down the tree, then you shape it, then the iron worker clads it with gold. Okay, and Isaiah is working backwards, and his point is going to be this. These gods that people bow down to, they're made by men. In fact, they're not just made by men. They're made by weak men who grow faint even as they do the work. 
So, all right, so there's an irony there that, that, that God wants you to understand with this idolatry. Verse number nine, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread in its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Let's pray. God, as we open your word today and we look at an ancient man and his idolatry, I pray, Father, that we would not look down on him, but we would look over at him and understand our own tendencies for idolatry, for things that displace you. God, our desire is to have an easy life now. We often don't think of eternity. We don't think of 1,000 years from now. We don't think of 10,000 years from now or 10 million. And Father, you are playing a long game here. Uh, this earth is marked for a short amount of time in eternity. And Father, you have a plan for mankind and you are creator. I pray, God, that we would worship you, that we would follow you, that we would shun idols, that we would shun substitutes for you. Bless us as we study together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we begin, there's an outline in your bulletin if you care to follow along. Uh, God declares himself to be God alone in verses 6 through 8. Uh, we didn't read this early on, but this, this really sets the stage. Um, in verse number 6 of chapter 44, Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Now, that's a rhetorical question. The answer to that should be no one. 
Who is like me? Let him, if somebody thinks he is, here's how he can proclaim it. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare. Set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. So God says, I want you to look back in history, Israel, and see I appointed you from centuries ago. Okay, so if there's somebody who thinks he's God, let him, dis- let him demonstrate this by appointing a people centuries earlier than the realities that are taking place. Um, uh, he said, let them declare what is to come. Do you see that at the verse, end of verse 7? Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock, no foundation. I know not any. So the God of the universe is saying, hey, are there substitutes for me? Okay, here's how you can test them. Let them declare truth centuries before it happens. And then when it happens, you can believe them. Uh, By the way, you're reading the book of Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, so much so that if you plaster Isaiah 53 on billboards in Israel today, uh, Jews who reject Jesus will say that's Christian propaganda. The problem is they don't know their own scripture sometimes, and they're like, that's Christian propaganda. You can go also to Jerusalem and see the Isaiah scroll dating back to before Jesus, by, by over a century, speaking of the coming of Jesus. Uh, we have in our hands here uh, prophecies that were declared 500 years before Jesus, and they came true. And so God said, you have another God? Okay, uh, here's the test. Let them proclaim something centuries before it happened, and, and when it happens, uh, we'll see. See, because God's playing a long game. God's like, hey, I'll still be here. 500 years from now, 1,000, I'll still be here. So let your gods proclaim some things and let's see uh, if those come true or not. But I am he who has demonstrated myself from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden. The woman's seed would crush the serpent's head, a prophecy of the Messiah coming to destroy our enemy, Satan. And, And God is he who has declared these things. And there is no God like him. God calls for an examination here, point number two of the uh, idols, as false gods that do not profit the worshipers. Verse number nine, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, his companion shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. By the way, this assembly is going to be at the end time judgment. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth that they, may, they shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The uh, tragedy of idolatry is it leaves its worshipers blind and deaf. And God's going to demonstrate it with the irony today of what they're actually doing. But that is the tragedy. Look at verse number 9. It says, All who fashion idols are nothing, And the things they delight in do not profit. They do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know. And the end of this is that they may be put to shame. Those who chase idols, instead of obeying God, will be brought to shame. God is prompt. Look at verse number 18. This is close to where we end. It's really the theme on which we end. And it's the same message. They know not. Verse 18, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes. He is either God or the false God they're worshiping. Uh, It has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. So the travesty of idolatry is it does not profit you. It just leaves you blind to what you're doing. 
You're chasing something and you're not getting it and you don't even see it. Well, the metaphor, the real illustration today is you have these weary or we might say finite craftsmen pounding metal and preparing wood, all steps needing the weakness of human inputs in order to fashion an idol. So this God is being formed by humanity, by weak humans, and then humans are bowing down and saying, you are my God. This is an irony. This is an irony that they are blind to seeing. Uh, Look at verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tools and works it over the coals. By the way, let me just show you a picture here real quick of an idol. I hope that's not sacrilegious to do in a church, but uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is dug up from the ground. And you can see there's a form, and then they plated the idol. And, um, uh, you know, and, and, and so what you need to do is imagine somebody, somebody has this idol in their home. You walk in, it's like, oh, yeah, nice idol. Wow, it's a lot of gold. Your idol has really blessed you. Your God has blessed you with prosperity and with fruitfulness. Now, they're not thinking that, they had to afford the gold before they even made the idol, right? Uh, but, but they're crediting their wealth to the idol. So there's just a lot of disconnects in idolatry. But the idea is, oh, yes, this is our household God, and we worship him or her, and, uh, and, and uh, she brings us good luck, and she just kind of makes life, oh, yeah, uh, we'll call her Gertrude, okay? Gertrude just says uh, she, she, she makes life really good for us, okay? And, um, and, and, and they don't even think, I purchased the gold without Gertrude, <laughs> You know, I made Gertrude from the prosperity of my own hands, and I had the prosperity before Gertrude even existed, but we worship her and credit her with all of our successes. Um, So anyway, uh, the ironsmith, verse 12, takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. This is pointing to human weakness. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. Those of you who are woodworker are like, oh man, I relate to this planing wood and, 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 and using a compass. Man, this is, this is right up your alley, right? And he planes with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Now that thing that I just put up on the wall, that didn't look beautiful to my eyes, but I guess it did to somebody. So, um, you know, the gold is certainly impressive. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. I could just hear the salesman. Oh, this is a strong tree. Its branches touch the heavens. Its its roots reach down to the netherworld. It's a tree. It is a piece of wood. That's what this text is going to be. But but, but, uh, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. For he makes it an idol and falls down before of it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. God is working from the end of a process to the beginning, from the goldsmith to the planting of a tree. And the point of verse 12 is that an idol is not only made by mere human craftsmen, it points out that these human craftsmen are are themselves growing weak. They are thirsting and fainting even as they make this thing. 
Now, you need to contrast that with the true God of heaven. He made us. We did not make him. And when he made us, when he made the universe, the Bible makes it clear he spoke it into existence. He was not exhausted. Uh, He did not grow tired. God rested on the seventh day and sanctified the seventh day as an example and a gift to mankind to give us a Sabbath. But God was not exhausted. The Bible does not speak of God saying, whoa, that was so much. I need a breather. He is infinite in his power. He is transcended above this creation that he spoke into existence. Such a vast contrast. The true God makes us and, hey, the true God keeps us. Uh, through all of life, through all of life's trial, he keeps us. And the point of verses 12 through 17 uh, is that um, uh, they were, it works backwards and just points that when they planted that tree, they had no intentionality of even making it a God. But then as they cut it down, some craftsmen decided, you know what, I'll use half of it for firewood and I'll take a little piece of it and I'll make a God out of it. And suddenly we end up with a deity an object of worship worship, to which we ascribe our lives and our livelihood? It's just a tree. Trees are great for harvesting, for fuel, for making beautiful things out of, but they are not gods, and they do not contain gods. Now, as I make application of this nonsense that we see in idolatry, I want to stop and look at the things that define our lives here in the United States of America. Because we're not a superstitious nation on the whole. I mean, there's some of us who will follow the horoscopes for some good luck to kind of grease the skids. There's some who maybe uh, looked at tarot cards or Ouija boards because you just wanted to know something about the future because you thought there might be some kind of a way in which you could provide a better future for yourself somehow. Yesterday, I noticed that someone posted on Facebook, there's this uh, local page that can be very helpful. It's called Spotted in Rochester, right? And so, you know, if you see something in Rochester that's interesting to other Rochester people, you just put it on Spotted in Rochester. If you have a question, and yesterday, somebody was asking for a psychic medium. They wanted to contact the dead because their dead loved one had left a lot of loose ends. And guess what? There were replies that had psychic mediums in the area that you could go to. What does the Bible say about using a psychic medium to grease the skids or using horoscopes to grease the skids? Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Now let's just stop right there. That's kind of severe, isn't it? That's pretty intense, burning your son or daughter as an offering. This is going to be mentioned in the same context as mediums and necromancers. And before you get too... Uh, disbelieving and, 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 and unable to absorb that anybody would burn their son or daughter, understand if you go back in archaeology and you look at the remains of these sons and, uh, sons and daughters, that they're mainly daughters. Or they're deformed with physical defects. So in antiquities, daughters were not as prized as sons. And the deformed, the, the, those were born with birth defects, We're not prized either. So what you have in offering your son or daughter to this false god is you have ancient abortion. The difference today is we've chucked the spiritism. Just as we don't worship the idol, we worship the bling uh, without any regard to any false gods. Uh, We don't offer our sons and daughters who are an inconvenience to some false god. We abort them. We kill them. 
right up to the moment of birth. And I think if the truth be told, sometimes even after that moment, it's like, oops, handle it. Nobody talk about it. So we really aren't that far progressed. We've just chucked the spiritism behind offering babies to Molech or other false gods. So Deuteronomy 18 verse 10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughters as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, speaking of the Canaanites, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now what's the problem with divination? God has appointed you to walk this world with him. He wants to be your God. He wants you to be content with the direction and the challenges he has for your life. These other sources of greasing the skids in life, they're displacing God. They're displacing God's agenda and the relationship. There are times God wants this life to be hard where you cry out to him and he delivers you. Let me put it this way. If you want your best future, it may not be your easiest future. Your best future may not be the easiest future. You need to let God determine that. Let God strengthen you for the walk that he has set before you and in which you are to honor him. Imagine if Job, halfway through his trials, went to a necromancer, went to a sorcerer. The the book of Job would not be the book of Job if he turned to some evil like that to grease the skids in his seeking to cope. And what about our stuff? I quoted that verse to you at the beginning, Colossians 3, 5. And again, it it identifies these things as idolatry. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, that's wanting stuff, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, God allows us to have stuff. Right? He allows us to have possessions. He allows us to have square footage. He allows many things. But while God allows us to have stuff, he doesn't want our stuff having us. There, there just comes a point at which we have too much stuff and we no longer own it. It owns us. Do you know what I mean? When you just got so much stuff and it's a maintenance nightmare and you just feel guilty all the time because you can't stay up with all your stuff. I like buying things. If I can confess this as your pastor, I like buying things. I like buying things that have unrecognized value. I like owning things for far less than they are worth. And I was very recently looking at a thing, a military surplus thing. (laughs) The guy bought it 15 years ago. It was sold to our U.S. government in 1992 for $103,000. Still had the paperwork. Now, $103,000 in 1992 is like over $200,000 today in value. And the price on this thing was $3,000. And I'm like, should I buy this thing? It's so cool. It just, it's made out of metal. It was in good condition. It had like infinite purposes, even though I had no immediate purpose for it whatsoever. So I'm 
praying about this. Sincerely, I'm praying about this. I don't know, you know, three years. So, you know, I'm like Gideon and the fleece. I offered the guy 1,500. <laughs> it came down to 2,500. I had 2,000 and change in my pocket just in case, you know, going to the appointment. I'm praying about this and I just don't know. Does God want me to have this thing? Well, in the end, God said no, or at least the owner of the thing said no. He did not come down. And I, I you know, and, 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 and I, I had the money, and I, I could have counteroffered, and I think I could have closed the deal. But I was just concerned that I had no real plan for how to use these things to the glory of God and his purpose in my life. And, and so does the Bible say anything to Pastor Tim wanting to buy this thing? By the way, if you want to know how recently this was, it was Thursday. <laughs> Listen to Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Oh, that's kind of direct. <laughs> Listen to Luke 8, verse 14. Now, in Luke 8, verse 14, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower, and really it's the parable of the seeds. What kind of seeds receive the gospel and then fail to bear fruit? Uh, you're going to find that some of the seeds that receive the gospel and fail to bear fruit are those that have riches and possessions. Listen to Luke 8, 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Now, God doesn't begrudge us some nice things. But when I want everything, that's a problem. What about the things we do with our bodies for meaning? And satisfaction. God gave us marriage, but mankind chooses adultery and fornication, including, and I might say, especially pornography and self gratification. You are holding a lie and you don't even know it. These things will never satisfy. There are men and women who are given over to adulterous relationships or being tempted by an adulterous relationship, wanting more than God has allotted for them, more emotional intimacy than their spouse gives them, more physical intimacy. And when you look outside the marriage rather than seeking to repair the marriage, this is a greed that displaces God and his purposes and plan for human sexuality. Am I saying it wouldn't be fun for a season? Well, I have no idea about that. But even if it yielded a lifetime of pleasures, you will stand in judgment. God is playing a long game here. I don't think it'll go well for you in this lifetime, but you will stand in judgment. Uh, let's look at our last point here, because this is a tragedy of, of, of idolatry. At the end of the day, idolaters are blind. They hold a lie in their hand, their right hand, their strong hand, their close hand. Uh, they hold a lie in their right hand without even knowing it. Verse 18. They do not know, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burn in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? 
He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the point of verses 19 and 20. Humanity is deceived by idols. We are made in the image of God, and yet we are left blind, deaf, and impotent by idolatry, by believing lies that are not true. Again, the modern man holds the lie of evolution and atheism. Evolution teaches that you are merely an evolved form of protoplasm, that there is no intentional design, no purpose of God in your life. Mankind just came to be as a happy little accident of some big bang or years of evolutional soup making. Therefore, you are the product of chance with no innate value and no eternal existence. They teach that when you die, you cease to exist. Heart, mind, and soul, it's all lights out. Therefore, if we want to have a global sexual revolution, it's up to mankind to decide that they want that. I mentioned several areas of sin a moment ago, areas of materialism, sexual greed, and vanity. How do those things leave us empty? Materialism. You want stuff thinking that it'll bring satisfaction, but you are blind. Everything you own owns you back. There's nothing wrong with owning a cabin up in the north, and some of you do uh, own a second home and a cabin. I think that's delightful. But there does come a point when we own too many things, where we make commitments, and when you own that cabin, you've got to drive three hours each way to go mow the lawn every three weeks or pay somebody to do it. I mean, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts. You have to springtime get it ready and winterize it in the fall and there's even that guilt. It's, it's already the end of August, and we were there to open the cabin. We made it to the 4th of July for a weekend. <sighs> when are we even going to fit it into our schedule to get back up to the cabin and winterize it? Everything you own owns you back. And so there's just matters of conscience. God wants you to have your ownership under control, not have your ownership controlling you. I mentioned sexual perversions, wanting more intimacy than your husband is providing, perhaps, or wanting more physical intimacy than your wife is providing. If you're seeking that emotional intimacy with another man, why would you want to be emotionally intimate with a grease ball who would go out with another man's wife? Doesn't the willingness to engage you in that kind of an activity disqualify him? from being a worthy object of your intimacy on the surface? Men wanting more physical intimacy than their marriage, rather than talking about that, rather than working through that, rather than seeking help for that, finding another person? Doesn't their willingness to do that with you disqualify them? Just, just put them on a whole different level of human existence? Do you really want that? This is a direct quote from one of those relationships. You are husband number two, and if you don't get in line, there will be a third. Maybe you get what you deserve if you're cheating. Husbands and wives, you have made a commitment to God and to man. While your relationship may be hard, do not fall into Satan's lies. Do not follow some idolatrous idea that you can find pleasure outside of the commitment that you have made before God. You will find yourself holding a, hand, a lie in your right hand without even knowing it. 
Ancient man, superstitious, sure. But modern man, what is in your right hand today that displaces God? What distracts you from participating in the assembly that gathers in his name? What are you doing that is in direct disobedience to his word and his plan, his revealed plan for your life? I hope you've not looked down on the ancient mindset today. Yes, they worshipped idols the way millions still do today all over the world. Americans feel like we're just a little too sophisticated for all of that. But, but where has that gotten our society really? Do, we, do not we and other Western societies lead the world in the most bizarre perversions and confusion? We participated in a sexual revolution in the 1960s and today we cannot even define a woman or a man. Are we really ahead of them? Verse 20, he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? We have shed the statuary, we've shed the superstition, but it hasn't helped us in the least. Christians, we know how this life ends and we know what will be rewarded. Yet we are tempted to seek pleasure in material possessions, in our bodies, in some perversion. Pray to God and ask him to guide you. Are you receiving permissible pleasures from his good hands? God allows many good things to believers in this world. Uh, Are the things that you have, things that you can openly praise God for and, and just tell the world and say, God has provided this and I thank him and I praise him. Or are you holding something in your right hand that you really don't care for God to see or for any other holy people to see? Maybe this I just need to keep over here. See, when you hold a lie, you're really lying to yourself. You're being fooled more than anyone else. You have a lie. It's in your right hand. And you don't even realize that that's what idolatry does to us. Let's bow for a moment of silent prayer before we go to the Lord's table and remember that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And if today's message has depressed you because you're like, you know what, I've got some idolatrous possessions or idolatrous activity in my life. Um, You can repent of that and and ask Jesus Christ to save you. Salvation is not by being a perfect person. Salvation is by recognizing your sin and trusting him. And so we're going to remember that he died for us here in a moment. That's why the symbolism, the bread represents his body, the the, uh, grape juice in the cup represents his blood. And We're just going to take a moment and remember he died for us. He asks us to remember that from time to time. If today's message on idolatry depressed you, I just want to remind you, salvation is not by having a beautifully adorned life. It is by turning from sin and turning toward Jesus in faith, trusting him. So let's bow for a moment. Let's just reflect on the possible idolatrous things that we have in our lives. Let's repent of that. And then I'll close us in prayer and ask the deacons to come and to uh, share with us the bread and the uh, grape juice here this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are creator. 
You made us in your image. When we sinned, you did not forsake us. You sent your son to die for us. You desire to walk with us. And Father, you have laid before us in your word, your heart, and your desire that we would rely upon you, that we would follow you, that we would walk with you. Lord, I pray that you would bless us to do so. I pray, God, that you would help us to identify idolatries in our lives. And Father, forsake them and trust you that you are enough and that what you have ordained for our lives is enough. And God, I pray that we would be among humanity the most liberated people, free to follow you, free to share the gospel, free to lay it on the line in love and just trust you for the outcome. Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for his sacrifice. He asked that we remember his sacrifice on the cross, and so, God, we do that now. And we thank you for our Savior, and it is in his name. Amen.